0: Welcome everyone to Bulldog Bites, practical tips for busy GCs. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a partner in Womble Carlisle's Business Litigation Practice Group. My guest today is Jeremy Smuckler, Vice President and General Counsel with ACN Incorporated, which is headquartered here just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. He's in Concord, North Carolina. Jeremy, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me, appreciate
0: it, Mark. Great. Um, As I mentioned, Jeremy, you're a uh, Vice President With ACN, how long have you been there at ACN?
1: Oh, going on about five and a half years. Feels like about 20 years. Gotcha. uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know. Well, and I know the company's been around. It's been interesting following some of the history. I know it started in the early 90s and has done a lot of, you know, creative and innovative approaches in the IT world. Can you give our listeners just a a brief summary of what ACN is doing now and kind of what the business is about?
1: Absolutely. Um, ACN is a direct selling company. So, we have a network of independent distributors, um, we call them independent business owners or IBOs for short, that are independent contractors who market the products and services that are offered by ACN or our third party vendors. We provide services such as uh, local long distance, voice over IP, wireless phone service. We have a brand called Flash Wireless that operates over three major networks. basically purchase wholesale and resell is the, probably the, the best way to think of it. And uh, then, like I said, we market certain services on behalf of uh, significant third-party vendors. This all happens through our independent business owner sales channel in the United States, Canada, and Europe, Asia Pacific, Australia. It's quite a substantial operation, uh, spans the globe, a hmm. uh, fantastic company. We're privately owned, very much founder-driven. Uh, and uh, very entrepreneurial. It's a great business.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. It sounds like an exciting place to work, and I'm sure presents some interesting legal challenges, too, for your job. Everything under the sun. (laughs) That's great. Well, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you today about um, is a topic that's important for all general counsels these days, and that is how to manage legal spend. Now, obviously, I know we've rehearsed and you're going to say the best way is to simply hire Womble Carlisle. So, isn't that true?
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> all right. Thank you. Well, that's all, folks. This is be a short podcast, but that's the key message. Now, um, Although we do believe hiring Womble is obviously an option, I wanted to talk about some of the the practical experiences you've had, you know, in trying to manage uh, legal spend. Let me, though, start with what may be a, a classic litigator trick and kind of the dumb question, but wh- why is managing s- legal spend important to you? What's the driver behind that for you?
1: Well, it is, uh, you know, is the the person I guess in charge of the North American Legal Department. Um, there's an expectation that, from the business that we provide the legal support and leadership uh, that the business needs and that we do so uh, efficiently. Um, and So managing the legal spend is critical of that function. We tell the business what we expect to spend every year. Our business is very understanding uh, that you know a lot of legal spend is not forecastable or predictable, but we do set expectations and, and we're held to those expectations.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, no, and I know it's a challenge, you know, legal departments often are given a lot of grief because they're not usually revenue producers. Obviously, if you can be creative, you can try to create revenue, but they're not exactly doing great return on equity. So if you're trying to maximize profits, legal expenses don't usually come to mind as a as a profit center. So I think that creates problems for a lot of in-house counsel.
1: Yeah, we're, we're not, you know, we're, we're obviously not thought of as a profit center. We strive to show the business that we contribute significant value, both from a, you know from a legal perspective and from a from a business perspective with the legal hat on right mm-hmm. so we want to help the business beyond just i mean we're not we're not just reviewing contracts we're trying to contribute insight help structure transactions uh strategize um when it comes to other types of matters uh, government relations or litigation or what have you we really try to take an active part in all those things and be more than just um more than just support but actually try to provide some degree of of leadership as far as our functional will allow us to do and uh there are there are times when I mean, the legal department does uh <laughs> bring in some money for the business but uh right. you know.
0: yeah no i know that can be hard to do are there tips um you, you obviously focus on that value component for other gcs out there that are constantly being told you know how are you adding value are there ways that you kind of convey that value to the business folks that might be helpful to other gcs that may just be starting out and in that role or have less experience kind of trying to talk the term, you know, talk the walk in terms of what value they're actually providing as they're, you know, revising a contract or catching a missing clause or, you know, those kind of things. I think you have to
1: understand who you're working with on the business side. You have to understand their personalities. Um, You have to understand the way that, that they operate and what they care about, what they don't care about, what they like to hear, what they don't like to hear, or how they like to hear things, right? And
0: you have to kind of, I don't wanna say
1: play to that personality, but you have to work in a way that's compatible with that personality. And I think just by working with them and really diving in and showing that you're not afraid to, to help out with whatever that person needs is a way to kind of show or introduce kind of the value that you can provide as an in-house lawyer. We don't like to say no to anything. Right. And right. that's not just a substantive point. That's a, a, just a matter of practice, right? If they ask us to do something, we're going to find a way to do it. Or if it's just not possible to do it, I'm not talking substance again. I'm talking right. practice. Yeah. If it's not possible, then we're going we're to very gently explain that and what the holdup is. If it's a prioritization issue, we're going to raise that to the appropriate stakeholders who can shift priorities if need be or dictate what we need to be focused on from a, a substantive standpoint we try to be a partner to the business, not a part of the business, not something that's seen as slowing down the business or the no person. I mean, obviously, there are things as a lawyer that you have to say no to if it's criminal, if it's fraudulent, but so very rarely, I don't think I've ever seen that at our company, but so very rarely do you encounter that. There's usually always a way to find find the right path, and that's what we strive to do.
0: That's neat. I'm struck by your description. I know that As outside counsel, that's one of the things that we try to do when we can is, you know, be, don't be an obstructionist, be a partner, try to figure out the business objectives and how to get there. And it sounds like, I mean, you're treating in many ways your business clients the same way that we would hope outside counsel would treat our in-house counsel clients, which is let's, you know, try to find a positive outcome. That's interesting to think about that partnership side as opposed to just... You know, I'm here as a as a hurdle or a checkbox. Yeah. I want to work with you. I think I that's should, great. I, I
1: should know. You know, I recognize we're a private company versus you know mm-hmm. a, a public company. GC may have other sure. Uh, you know, other issues that they have to to worry about. But
0: yeah, no, I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about controlling spend. I know you've got to, sometimes you've got to turn to outside counsel where you don't have the manpower, the resources. What in your experience have been some practical ways that you focused on on legal spend that might be helpful for our listeners to hear?
1: I From, a, from just a practice standpoint, is that
0: the... Yeah, I guess I'm person? just, you know, if for, for GCs out there that want to control spending, mm-hmm. are there tips that you could, you know, maybe provide or things that you've done that you think can can help on that front? Yeah, I mean,
1: I, you know, the, the approach that I always take when we, I engage with outside counsel, which is, you know, the bulk of our outside spend, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> that's the, the driver right. of the first vote, um, is to understand what to expect, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we're looking to understand what our outside lawyers expect the cost to be, what the fees to be, and then to stick to that estimate, so to meet the expectation. And we recognize that there are always things that happen that may complicate deals or may complicate litigation or litigation may go in different directions, whatever. It's communication, right? When those things happen, we expect communication, right? If we do A, your cost is gonna go up or you know, if we do B, we can bring the cost down, but there's an associated risk with that. I mean, there's always an option and what we don't like and what I think is the biggest struggle for us internally is when we've set an expect, or we've, we've been given an expectation, and we've, because you've got to remember, we're communicating that expectation on the back end to the business stakeholders, right? right? And we've set that expectation with the business stakeholders, and then the matter concludes with no interim communication on the legal spend, and the bill is 2x or 3x what mm. the, the estimate was. And you know, that's something i didn't understand when i was in private practice as much you know i i I didn't understand what the in-house folks were having to deal with but i do now and one of the most important qualities that we find in outside lawyers is their ability to understand uh, what we're having to deal with on the inside as far as that goes and reasonably set expectations and meet those expectations or communicate with us if something goes Australia. Um, and then, you know, there are obviously, I think you're going to get to this later, but you know, alternative fee arrangements and that sort of thing. Right. And we, we consider those types of things. There are routine matters that we have to deal with, uh, everyday issues that, you know, particularly from a you know a regulatory standpoint, when you look at all, you know, we're, we're a telecommunications company that engages in, in network marketing in all 50 states and, and in Canada, I and mean, that's my purview, obviously, mm. we're, we're worldwide. Right. But there are there are more regulations than than any one person can keep up with um, and so we rely heavily on outside counsel to help guide us in our everyday decisions um, in terms of our regulatory compliance and what we don't like is having to see a bill at the end of the month that varies from month to month it goes up or down and you know just so we've started to move towards. Trying to engage counsel who are willing to work with us on a more flat fee basis that are there for everyday questions that can help guide us through legal issues related to, to business initiatives that we want to undertake uh, that concern those regulatory issues.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, thanks. I think you've made a couple of important points there. And I know in terms of budgeting or setting the cost expectation. I think that is sometimes something that people outside counsel sometimes feel uncomfortable about, right? They either don't know how much it's going to cost or they're worried about putting a number out there that they then miss. I mean, how do you do you require a budget on matters? How do you kind of force that discussion? Because I agree with you in my experience, having that candid discussion to say, here's a budget, and then maybe you modify it and say, we don't need to take 10 depositions, we can get by with five. Or, you know, and, and so you actually have that discussion about what the most cost effective tasks are. But how, do you have suggestions on how to get to that point, we're actually going to do it? Do you require it? What's, a, what's the way to have that that good discussion up front, as opposed to you know the bill at the end of the case. You know, we almost
1: always try to have that discussion up front. Our first question is, you know, here's the here's the matter that we need to uh, to work with you on, and um, you know we understand that we haven't worked out the the details yet. We haven't really even defined entirely the scope of the project. But you know, you're an outside lawyer uh, who deals with these types of issues on a regular basis, or maybe hopefully is dealt with something similar, uh, that is translatable ballpark. What are we talking? Uh, and then, you know, that kind of sets, you know, and that ballpark may be a range maybe if it's, you know, litigation matter, it could, you know, it could be, you know, a pretty incredible range, but mm-hmm. it at least gives us a floor expectation, right? We're not going to be able to do it for under 10 K or hundred K, whatever the number is. Right. And that, that helps initially. And then from there, Um, we can start to think about the actual scope and the details and how those are going to drive the numbers and do we need to look for some sort of alternative to the hourly billing model. So, you know, I think a lot of outside lawyers have a hard time getting away from the hourly billing model, is my impression. Yeah. can speak more to that. Right. (laughs) Yeah. um, But it's nice when we encounter outside lawyers who are very open to you know, being flexible in the billing arrangement, whether it's sticking to an estimate that they give because they feel very comfortable in this area and they, they know they kind of know the range that they're working with and they're willing to set to set the fee. Absent, you know, extraordinary mm-hmm. circumstances. Or a lawyer who's engaged and willing to work with us on alternative arrangements. You don't like the hourly billing model, okay, well let's move in, let's talk about something else that may work for you and actually propose a suggestion. Something that you did when we talked about a matter recently. So. Right.
0: Right. Well, and I do, I think, um, and we've had discussions before, I do think there's a tension in billable hours, which is certainly the default mode, um, where you don't really have alignment between the client and the lawyer. The, you know, the lawyer wants the matter to last forever and bill as many hours as they can, and that's rarely the client's objective um, in the case. So I think there's that tension there that an alternative fee can get to and give you a sense of here's the value. I think the other plus of alternative fees is if you have a fixed fee up front, the business can then make the decision, is it worth engaging in that? And how do we price it? So, Just like they price all their other cost components as they're going forward. So if you're going to do a big transaction and you know your legal fees up front, that can help decide whether to do the transaction. So I think there's a benefit. Do you have, I know you mentioned you've started looking to some alternative fee um, arrangements, any practical tips for how to either evaluate those or or try to come up with something that's actually workable? Because you mentioned outside counsel being fearful. I've talked to a number of, of in-house counsel, and I think there's some fear there too about how do I know I'm getting fair value it's not the model I was trained on, how's it going to work?
1: Well, I mean, we shop our work, right? Um, we have certain firms that we, that we like to go to for certain matters because they know us, they've proven themselves very capable in those areas and are, are, are good to work with. Um, but when it comes particularly to the, you know, let's you know as a vague example, uh, you know if it's a high dollar transaction, we're going to shop that, um, and it may be that we have a particular firm in mind that we want to do it because of a relationship. But if we shop it around and there's a significant cost difference, and it's going to save us you know a ton of money to to take it elsewhere to a you know equally qualified firm, we're going to do that, uh, and so I think that helps alleviate the concern that that you're not getting fair value for what you're spending. But there's also there is also value to eliminating the, and I'm going, I keep going back, I know there's a lot of in between, but I keep going mm-hmm. back to the flat fee versus hourly fee, right? Right. Um, there's a lot of value to understanding and having an expectation as to a, what your fee is gonna be. It takes a lot of the time and effort of managing the hourly expectation out of the equation, and we can use that time to focus on other things either related to that transaction, or related to other things that we have going on. I mean, we're so busy. Uh, at our company at least, uh, and I think most in-house lawyers are extremely busy. <laughs> um, you know, we just don't, we don't have a lot of time to really dive in and manage these things. And so, you know, if, particularly if the, the outside firm is not good about managing their own hourly fees, and I'm not being overly really mm-hmm. critical, but a lot of firms are not very good about it. It helps us to just understand what it's going to cost, Period.
0: That's a great point, because I think you're right. I don't think most lawyers are not really trained to manage costs. And if it's an hourly, there's always that self-interest thing, too, about, well, if I cut the hours, unless I have plenty of other billable work, I'm cutting myself. But you make a great point about if, if it's additional hourly, if they're not going to manage the fees, then it falls to the GC right. to try to manage that and say, did they do this efficiently? Am I going to fight with them on this bill? And you can avoid that with a alternative fee arrangement that may do it. And I'll say two things on that front before we move on. First is, as a litigator, one thing I've started using that I think can be a win-win is sometimes called a collaring arrangement, but we'll agree on a budget for a phase of the case. And then if I go over budget... The fees get cut in half. You know, I'll share that overrun 50-50. But if we go under budget, I get a bonus. We essentially share the savings 50-50. Obviously you have to have that right budget number. But I find that brings the legal team into alignment because all of a sudden I've got a budget and I've got real incentive to meet it. And if I can beat it, great, I get some of that money back. And on the other hand, if I go over, I'm sharing that cost and the client knows that I've got skin in the game and and incurring some of that cost. So that's something I'd, as, a, as a technique I might suggest to GCs. And the other thing, just to remind our listeners too, Womble's committed to provide non-hourly pricing on every, uh, on every matter. So please give me a call and we can uh, come up with a price if you're tired of paying by the hour. We did get a couple of questions in, in advance from our listening audience. And so let me ask uh, a couple of those. Um, the first one asks, do you use a list of approved counsel? And if so, how do you use the list, and how is it created?
1: Uh, no, one of the um, not a formal list, at least. One of the advantages, I think, to working at, at our company, which again is is you know privately owned still, is that you know we have a little bit more flexibility in terms of how we do things. We have process. Process is important, but we're left in many respects to manage to our, you know to our own devices. So it's it's largely within. Legal department's purview as to which firm is selected for what work, right? And there's no, there's never really a hold up to engaging a new firm. If there's value to be had in engaging a new law firm, um, an advantage, you know, whether it's a substantive advantage or, or an economic advantage, whatever, whatever it may be, they, uh, there's not going to be any, any issue with that. Um, the, the owners of the company and, and the executives. Who run the business want the work to get done and they want it to get done well and efficiently they don't my impression is is that they don't necessarily care who's doing the outside work as long as those objectives are accomplished now mm-hmm. i mean that's not to say there aren't relationships and you know there are and, and so for certain things those relationships are valued and they're going to point us in a certain direction but by and large the approved council list is the is a merit list i mean it's based on merit law firm does good work for us, they're going to stay on our list. <laughs> um, if they, they don't, or we feel as though uh, we're, not getting, we're not getting good service, or no, we're not getting good economic uh, economics from the firm, then they're going to go off the list. So.
0: Gotcha. No, that makes sense. The other question we had from our audience uh, asks, my procurement department wants me to bid out legal work and give it to the lowest bidder. How should I respond? So, and I don't know if you've had that experience, but, uh, you know, I I guess this is, um, there are companies where there's this always focus on everything else is lowest cost provider. What about legal services?
1: Um, I I think it depends on the type of matter. There are certain issues where, you know, we don't necessarily want the lowest cost provider. Uh, We want somebody who may be charging top dollar, but they're the best in that field um, and we need the best in that field. But then there are there is other work you know more or less commodity work you know not actual commodity work but you know certain types of transactional work where you can go to any big firm in town or even any medium or smaller firm in town and they're going to be able to to handle that um, and so it's not we don't have a procurement department telling us to find the lowest bidder on that we're doing that <laughs> all right. so
0: great all right thanks well those are good questions thank you for contributing. Um, We like to have fun on the show, so um, what I'd like to end with is a quiz, Um, uh, and this is only lightly connected uh, to today's discussion, but are you ready for some fun price-related questions, Jeremy? Sure. All right, so we talked about budget, and so we're curious if that extends outside of the legal work and have some questions that we're calling, what do you think this costs? Completely unrelated to the, the Price is Right game. Um, My so, wife I'm would be much better at this than me. All right. I, yeah, I feel the same way. It's something that probably it's unfair to ask people like us. I know I try to go into a grocery store every six months, whether I need to or not, just to remind myself what it looks like. But we'll see how you do, and maybe our listeners at home can play along. So, the first item is grocery store brand gallon of milk. So, the classic pick up a gallon of milk on the way home, I'll accept any answer within the nearest 20 cents. Organic or non-organic. This would be non-organic, regular gallon of milk at a local at a local store. Uh, I don't know four dollars that's very close i check when I checked Harris Teeter was at three fifty nine so I think we'll give that as a close proximity uh there that's better than I would have done so good, good job I'll, I'll give you give you credit on question one. There are a total of of four questions to see that we'll okay. see see how many you can get. Question number two uh relates to movies. Do you go to movies often yeah. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and I'm excited about Rogue One, which is coming out in a couple of weeks. So I'll be taking right. my son and daughter to see that. So. All right, excellent. Yeah, we got our tickets this weekend, so they are, they are still still available, but it's exciting. So uh, the question is a movie-related question, which asks, what is the current national average cost of a movie ticket? This is peak hours, so not matinees. This is the Friday night, Saturday night, but nationwide, not here in in uh, in Charlotte, and I'll take any answer within fifty cents of the correct. Within fifty cents. I mean, you can the get right? within fifty cents. If you get within a dollar, we may give you a, we'll give you a partial credit. Twelve dollars. It actually, according to Box Office Mojo, is eight sixty one, which is lower than I expected, wow, and frankly, lower than short. what you'd expect to pay here at a lot of Charlotte theaters. So, um, yeah, no, I was going to say, I mean, here certainly in, in uptown Charlotte, it's going to be at least twelve dollars a ticket, and and quite a bit even out in the suburban areas. But that's your national average. Wow. Okay. So I guess it's a lot cheaper <laughs> if you go out to to uh, you know Omaha, Nebraska, you can probably see movies on the cheap. So oh. that's the national average for a, for an adult ticket. All right. Question number three relates to bulk purchases and long shelf life, and I assume, being budget conscious, you do a lot of bulk purchasing. Uh,
1: <laughs> I don't. I defer my wife on that one.
0: <laughs> well, th- this is sometimes known as a survival food. It is the delicious Twinkie. Mm-hmm. The real question is, though, how long can a Twinkie sit before it exceeds its sell-by date? And I'll give you some choices here. Is it forty-five days? 85 days or 125 days?
1: 125 days. That was
0: my Uh, thought, but actually the answer is only 45 days, which is really contrary to its myth as a long formula. And In doing some research, we learned that the original formula was changed four years ago. It used to only be about 20 days of recommended shelf life. So enjoy the Twinkies, but eat them promptly uh, because they don't last forever. I, I, uh, it looks like it, but <laughs> I, can't, I, I did in my youth. It's I did in my youth. I, I actually don't have Twinkies that often now, but I, they're kind of the classic. To me, they were bomb shelter food. You know, you stock up the bomb shelter with boxes of Twinkies. <laughs> so, but this now, the research suggests to our listeners that's not the best use of a Twinkie. Stick with your uh, your basic rations, and then the final is a ranking from highest to lowest of three different items. The first is one I would very much like to own, a Tesla Model S Standard Edition. Tesla, obviously, a, uh, a classy electric car. The second is a near-flawless copy of the comic book Amazing Fantasy number 15. Our listeners may recall that's the first appearance of Spider-Man, so a, a rare find. And the third item is one-year tuition, Room board fees and everything at your alma mater, Vanderbilt University. One so year, you said. one year at Vanderbilt, one year at Vanderbilt, all in, a new Tesla, or amazing fantasy number fifteen. Give them to me in, in one, two, and three rank. Well, I'm not a
1: comic person, so I'm gonna, but I'm I'm gonna guess that it's th- the highest, and then I'm gonna guess uh, standard Tesla.
0: I'll say Tesla's second in that matter, though. Correct. Yeah, good oh, job. Right. Uh, that is all three in correct order. So that's a great way to finish strong. Do you uh, have the you, actual, do do actual do. dollars for I these, have the actual yeah? dollars for all three, so you're correct. The comic book is shocking, and I urge our audience to scour their attics because in 2011, a collector paid a record $1.1 million for Amazing Fantasy number 15. Um, which is almost 15 times the cost of our next highest item, the standard Tesla S, which is now at 68000 And just behind that at 62320 is Vanderbilt for uh, the, the undergraduate degree. It's so, like um, my son will not
1: be following my footsteps.
0: Yeah, <laughs> It is pricey. That's why state schools like Chapel Hill are, look pretty attractive for those of us here in North Carolina. So that's great. Congratulations on the quiz, Jeremy. You've got really three or four correct. So uh, oh, thanks, um, so that's, a, that's an outstanding performance. So I appreciate you very much being here and your thoughts on, on managing legal spend. Um, I want to encourage our listeners to subscribe to the podcast and find out more by going to WCSR.podcast. While you're there, be sure to shoot us questions and comments that we can tackle in upcoming episodes. Remember, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, so chew careful.